Amen. Thank you, Aaron and praise team. That's a good reminder uh, that on Christ the solid rock we stand, and then whom shall we fear? That's a great, uh, I like how Aaron is so thoughtful in planning our worship, that uh, the cornerstone of Christ is the solid foundation on which the church is built. And that means that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. And we have nothing to fear, not a virus, not a, a bad economy, not anything political going on in our world because Christ is our solid foundation. So thank you, Aaron and Praise Team, for that. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts today. Uh, I, I love that we're in this book in this season because I, I didn't realize how timely and how relevant it all would be to what's going on in our actual world right now, but uh, it really is timely, isn't it? We're seeing uh, a lot of themes and acts that are playing out in our world in real time right now, and that's an exciting thing that the Holy Spirit had lined up when we had no idea planning this series, that it would be so relevant and so timely. You know, Acts is really about these new churches trying to figure out how to do church when, when no one knows how to do church. It's, there's no step-by-step -step instruction manual for these fledgling faith communities on how to be the church during a time of Roman occupation. It was a time of great uncertainty of what was going to happen politically in the region. Everyone's just trying to figure out what God is up to and how they can be a part of it, how they can join him in what he's doing. So when this year began here at Woodmont, we kind of thought we had things figured out. We thought we knew where we were headed, and we had no idea that we'd be in the same boat that these people in Acts in the first century are in in trying to figure out how we are going to be the church, how we are going to accomplish the mission of the church during a time of uncertainty and confusion. I was talking with some pastor friends of mine uh, this week, and they were all saying how they'd been waiting for things to return to normal, and now we're kind of realizing they're not going back to normal, at least not anytime soon. So therefore, we're going to have to do what the believers in the book of Acts did. We're going to have to get creative. We're going to have to be bold and courageously follow where the Spirit of God leads. It's scary, right? But it's also exciting. I'm excited about finding new ways to be the church. And I'm reminded that God is still on his throne, that Christ is our solid rock, our, our cornerstone, our firm foundation, and that none of this takes him by surprise. What, what is he doing in the midst of a pandemic to bring about his good purposes for our community, for Nashville, and for the world? How can we join him in it? Will we have the courage to join him in it once we find out the answer to that? Today we're going to see a, a major turning point in the book of Acts. It's a shift from the, the Jewish believers that have kind of been centered uh, the, so far in the first 11 chapters of Acts out to the frontier where Gentile churches are beginning to become the center of attention. And we haven't done this in a while, but I think it's appropriate for us to read the entire uh, text. It's only uh, a few verses today in Acts chapter 11. I'd ask you to stand wherever you are in honor of God's word, just to get off the couch or, or whatever you may be, if you can. If you're not able to, that's fine. But hear now the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat wherever you may be. You know, the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is just continuing to spread throughout the ends of the earth, just as our Lord foretold it would in Acts 1.8, when he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing in Antioch is the story of a church plant that, that took off like wildfire. It was, of all things, a Gentile church in a Gentile city, a very Gentile city, if there are degrees of Gentileness. The gospel was moving outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, in a, in a major way here. Antioch was the, the third, I, I keep saying Antioch, like, you know, the, the place a little southeast of here, Antioch, but Antioch, however you want to say it. Antioch was the third largest city in the world at this time, next to Rome and Alexandria. It was a major cosmopolitan hub. And apparently so many people in this city are coming to Christ. They're coming to faith in Jesus that the locals coin a new phrase to describe these people, this new group of believers. Look at the end of verse 26. In, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's like a nickname that they give them. You know, followers of Jesus up until this point had called themselves disciples or uh, the, the saints or the believers or the brethren even. Uh, they, they said they were followers of the way, those kinds of things. But most people just saw them as a, a sect of Judaism, kind of strange offshoot of Judaism until now. The, the, the pagan, unbelieving citizens of Antioch give them this kind of uh, nickname of Christians because these people follow Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. It, it refers to the one who was to come 
and to help bring about God's salvation unto the ends of the earth and make all things new. And these people who are coming to faith in the Messiah and in Christ are, are betting their lives, they're staking their whole lives on the fact that the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, is Jesus of Nazareth. That he was the one sent by God, the son of the living God, to, to play his part in redeeming all that has been lost in the fall back together. So the citizens of Antioch noticed this group talking about the Messiah all the time, and so they came up with a kind of a hybrid word to describe these people. Again, they took the Greek name for Messiah, then they took the Latin suffix ian, which means adherence of, or maybe even belonging to, and combined it into this new term, Christian, those who belong to Christ, to the Messiah. People who built their lives on Caesar were called Caesarian. Those who were adherents of the Herod dynasty were known as Herodians. But those who staked their lives on the fact that Jesus was the Christ are known as Christians. In our world, you know, the word Christian can be pretty vague. It's kind of devoid of power in our world. Back during the, the British uh, imperialization of India, the, the Indian people just referred to the British people as Christians because they were from a Christian nation. They just assumed no matter how those people lived or believed that they were all just Christians. But as I've said before, you know, being in a church or watching a church service on TV or on your phone or your iPad or whatever, that doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. So many people in our world today may have grown up with Christian parents and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My parents had me baptized when I was a kid. Or they may say, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church, you know, every now and then or I used to back when going to church was a thing. But people think that they're Christians, but don't really understand what that term implies. It's really a lot more to it than what our culture tends to think of. We need to be clear today about what a Christian really is. I love uh, N.T. Wright's book uh, called Simply Christian. In that book, he says that God has committed himself ever since creation to working through his creatures in particular through his image-bearing human beings, but they've all let him down, which is why we needed a savior. We couldn't do it on our own. No matter how many lambs we killed, no matter how many oxen that we sacrificed, it was never enough to atone for our sins to be made right with the holy God of all creation. And that's why Jesus came. As a, a Christian now, is, is someone who has died to themselves and by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling them has been raised into a whole new kind of existence. It's like a new creation, the Bible says. A new way to be human, as Switchfoot says. Brad, I know you'd like that one. It's a whole new way to exist on this planet now. It, it's like our old self has died and we've been resurrected into this new humanity. A Christian is someone who's been converted regenerated, born again. That doesn't mean that Christians never struggle. We still indwell these broken bodies and we live in a broken world. 
N.T. Wright says, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we're satisfied with sentiment. Made for and we settle. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be Christian. Wright says, it's to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. I love that. Christians are those who have been resurrected with Christ and who now follow him into this new life now and forever. So great name, Antiochans. Well done. That's a great nickname you gave us. The word Christian went from being this kind of slang term on the streets of Antioch to, to being the word that describes who we are at our core, those who belong to Christ. Antioch was a rough place, too. It was a, a really pagan city. It was full of rough people, very worldly place. It was famous for its chariot racing and its kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure. It had a huge temple with uh, all kinds of pagan rituals in that temple. The, the, the main architectural feature of, of that temple, of, 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 it was called the Temple of Daphne, it was where the cult prostitutes worked day and night. It was really sin city. It was really the sin city of its day in, in the world. But God had a plan for Antioch. Antioch would become the first hub of foreign missions. It would become the sending point for God's world mission from which Saul and Paul, as, as his name is soon changed to, would, would go forth into the world. It was also a place where some of the greatest preachers of all time lived and ministered, not just Peter and Paul, but Ignatius, Theophilus, John Chrysostom. All these guys lived and, and, and worked in Antioch in the middle of Sin City. And it was here that the disciples were first called Christians. So how did it start? Why did the gospel take root in Antioch of all places? I'm going to give you three key factors here for why the success happened at First Baptist Church of Antioch. And the first one is that there was a willingness to cross cultural barriers. Look at verse 19 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. You know, the persecution from Jerusalem had scattered the Jewish people all over the world, and, and some of them that were the, the pure blood, high-standing Jewish people when they converted to Christ, 
said, we're, we're only going to evangelize the nice, pure blood Jewish people. We're not going to speak to those worldly Gentile pagans who have been Hellenized. You know, Alexander the Great came in and Hellenized. That means made them Greek-speaking, Greek people, Greek culture. In that part of the world, that was 300 B.C. And they said, we're not going to talk to those people. But some of them that came from Cyprus, that was an island, you know, in the Mediterranean, and Cyrene was a, a city in North Africa. These Africans are coming into the region of Antioch, and they are speaking to the Hellenists, to the Gentiles, about Jesus. They're willing to cross those Hellenistic, you know, barriers, which other Jewish people who were now Christians would not yet cross. They were willing to get out of their comfort zone in order to bring the good news to everyone and anyone who would listen. These people from Cyprus and Cyrene were Hellenistic Jews that were once considered less than, as kind of a mixed-blood Jewish race. And now they were running with the light of Christ to those people in Antioch who needed to hear the good news the most, those who were lost desperately and headed for disaster. The result was another great awakening. Look at the next verse. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Praise God for another revival breaking out here in Antioch. It, it's an act of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. There's no mission society, you know, commissioning these people and sending them out after they've been trained for years. There's no church hierarchy in, in place. There's no structure of elders and deacons, none of that stuff. I mean, Jerusalem kind of has some of that stuff going on, but none of that's reached Antioch yet. These guys are just being faithful to share the good news that they themselves have received with others. And they're willing to do that with anyone and everyone. The second key to the church's success in Antioch is they receive support from other churches. We're not alone in this thing. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the, of the revival, came to the church in Jerusalem, <clears throat> and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. When First Baptist Church Jerusalem hears what's going on up in Antioch, they send Barnabas to help them. You know, Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. And they probably sent him to encourage this work that's happening up in Antioch. They were willing to sacrificially send him up there. And I, I love that what Barnabas saw in verse 23 can only be described as the grace of God. It's no way to explain it, but the unmerited favor of God that has descended upon the town of Antioch. And he's glad. He's glad. It says that he was rejoicing at what God's favor was accomplishing in Antioch. So he gives them a, a, just one simple message. Stay faithful to Christ. with steadfast purpose. Don't get distracted by how we take communion or what kind of songs we're going to sing. Keep your eyes on Christ. Fix your focus on the Lord Jesus. And follow him with all your heart, and then you will be okay. So he saw God's grace in action. 
he rejoiced, he was glad, and he encouraged them. How was Barnabas able to do all those things? Look at verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. God had so worked on the character of Barnabas, and our character is our destiny, right? Don't forget that. The, the Holy Spirit had refined him to the point where Luke, who's writing this letter, describes him as a good man. And the result is, again, that a great many people are added to the number of the church. You know, it's such a blessing that a sister church would be willing to send a guy like Barnabas for the edification of this new work of this fledgling church up in Antioch. This is the heartbeat of organizations that we partner with as Baptists, that we would work together, that Christianity is a team sport. It'd be easy for us to just focus within Woodmont Baptist Church, but we think we're better together. That's why we, we give to missions organizations like the Nashville Baptist Association, like the Tennessee uh, Baptist Mission Board, like the Southern Baptist Convention and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, we partner with these organizations because we, as Baptists, don't, we don't have to do that. We're autonomous. We own our property. We can pretty much do whatever we want, but we choose to partner for the gospel uh, going forth into the world with other organizations in a powerful way because we believe that other churches are part of the same church that we are, one body one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. That leads us to a third key. The third key of the success in Antioch was there was a timely recruitment. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know, we have a great staff team here. I love our staff family. You know, Ron, our facility guy, keeps the, the facility in, in great shape and humming along. Lil, who ministers so well to our senior adults and cares so well for them. Uh, you know, Wendy, who runs the preschool and, and ministers to those families and to those workers down there. And it's just a, a great thing to see. And, and we look like geniuses now for hiring a full-time communications person. Andy, who's directing this broadcast right now has been invaluable during this season of communicating over technology. And we didn't know we were going to be in this season when we made him full-time communications director. But I've also been able to be a part of recruiting some people to our team. I've, I've gotten to see how uh, Rachel, our minister of children, and how uh, Aaron, our new minister of music, and now Evan, our minister of students, uh, I've been a part of that process of, of kind of recruiting these people, and I know what a difference a timely recruit can make in the ministry of an organization. And Barnabas knew just the guy for the job in Antioch, Saul of Tarsus, the fiery former persecutor who was breathing out murderous threats against the church, who now had been converted on the road to Damascus and who had this dramatic life change and who was now an amazing evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had been a few years now since 
Barnabas had spoken up for Saul when he came to Jerusalem in front of Peter and the disciples. Barnabas said, hey, this guy's the real deal. He's okay. <clears throat> Saul had grown during this time in his love for Jesus. He had matured as a disciple and as a leader in the church movement, as a, as a preacher of the gospel and a teacher of God's word. Barnabas realized that as the revival spread in Antioch, it was too much work for him. He's going to need some help. And, and I think he realized that God's hand was on Saul in a, in a special way, that God had anointed him for this reason. And Barnabas didn't need to be the lone hero driving the train in Antioch. He didn't need the credit. All he cared about was that God's kingdom was advanced and God's church was built. So he recruited Saul. And from this point on, Barnabas kind of takes a back seat. Not kind of, he does take a back seat a supporting role as Saul becomes this mighty evangelist and missionary in the church movement, and he's okay with that. So Barnabas and Saul show up in heathen, pagan Antioch, and they're like the dynamic duo. You know, their, their gifts so perfectly complement one another. Barnabas is sensitive, he's empathetic, he's gracious, and Saul, he has this brilliant razor-sharp kind of lawyer's mind. He knows the scriptures inside and out. He's been trained by the best rabbis. He knows exactly what God's up to through his plan of salvation. So together, with the Spirit's power working between them, they were an unstoppable force. The people who were first called Christians were now off and running thanks to three things, a willingness to cross cultural barriers, some help from sister churches, and a great recruit who came all the way from Tarsus and spent a year discipling and teaching these young believers. And these people were constantly talking about Christ. It was, the name of Christ was on their lips, so much so that their fellow citizens gave them the nickname Christians, the name that we bear today. Do you and I talk about Christ so much that, that people would be willing to deem that we are Christians, that we belong to Christ? I have a friend I talked to even this week, and he always says things like, oh, the Lord's been so good to my family. I'm like, how you doing, man? He's like, oh, the Lord's been great this week. The Lord, you know, has shown me this. The Lord's done this. In my reading, the Lord told me this. And the Lord, he's just always talking about the Lord and what the Lord's doing in his life. Does our speech reflect our, the fact that we belong to Christ? Do we talk about the Lord Jesus? You know, I, George Fox was a young man in England back in the 1600s when he grew increasingly dissatisfied with the teachings of the Church of England. And he started teaching and preaching that we don't need a, a professional clergy to be a go-between between us and Jesus, that we could learn from Christ and his word directly for ourselves. And he was tried for blasphemy, of course, and during the trial, he pointed his finger at the judge, and he said, I bid you to tremble at the word of God. So the judge called him and his fellow followers Quakers as a way of making fun of them. Years later, John Wesley and his followers would be termed Methodists because of the 
systematic, methodical way in which they pursued holiness. So the question for us is this. Is there some kind of spiritual dynamic among us as believers here at Woodmont Baptist Church that might cause people outside of our congregation to reach for a whole new term to describe us, maybe in jest, maybe mockingly, but maybe it'd be accurate as well. What word would that word be? What word do people use now to describe us? Wouldn't it be great if we could live for Christ with such depth and with such power, constantly speaking about the things of Christ, that everyone around us would have to strive for a new term to describe who we are? But for now, let us be content to be called Christians, those who belong to Christ. I pray that we would be worthy of the name Christian. You know, as Christians, let us not bear the name of Christ lightly. Let us don't take it for granted, but let us be conscious of what we represent to the world. W.A. Criswell, in his commentary on Acts, he tells the story of Alexander the Great, who had conquered the world pretty much by the age of 23. And in his army, he heard about a, a young soldier whose name was Alexander, who was a great coward. He was notorious for not wanting to go into battle and for being a coward. So Alexander the Great called this young soldier to him, and he said, is your name Alexander? And the soldier says, it is. And he says, were you named for me? And the soldier says, yes, I was named for you. And Alexander the Great said, then be brave or change your name. As Christians, do we bear the name of Christ effectively to the world? Do we represent the one for whom we are named? Do we bear the name of Christ in a way that honors him appropriately? Let's not take it lightly, but let's live into our identity as Christians, as those who belong to Christ and who follow him into God's new world. Let's pray. God, we know there's so much in a name. We pray that we would be bearers of your name to a world that desperately needs you. We thank you that you have redeemed us and adopted us into your family so that now we can bear your name, Christian, to a world that is lost and searching. God, I pray that as we approach this table this morning that you would meet with us as we commune with you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would come now and that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts as we approach the table of mercy. We pray these things in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I would invite you now to move into this time of communion, to examine your heart before the Lord today, confess where you have fallen short before the Lord. We're going to take our juice and our bread, whatever elements you have. Uh, I'm going to ask Lauren to, to play an abbreviated version of your song. Can you do that? I would ask you now just to enter a time of reflection. Just look inward at your soul, pray, ask the Lord to show you where you've fallen short, and ask him to come and commune with you now. Let's pray silently on our own, then we'll take the elements together.